Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.3, Livia Drusilla, The Whims of Fate. After two episodes of background and build-up, today is the first of our biographical episodes, the kind of shows that this podcast is all about. Today, we start with the story of one of ancient Rome's greatest women, Livia Drusilla, starting from the beginning of her life, going up to her marriage to the man who would one day rule as Emperor of Rome. Before we do get going, though, I'd like to give you the usual reminders to remember to subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcasts, and to check out the show on social media, especially on Facebook, where I post all updates from the show, plus anything from the news that catches my attention. If you'd like to support the show, then be sure to head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast, where I will soon be publishing a review of a brilliant book that I just read on the women's suffrage movement, and I think that you should all totally read too. I don't know about you all, but I have been really enjoying reading all the stories surrounding the 100-year anniversary of women, some of them at least, winning the right to vote in the UK. I can't wait to cover the worldwide suffrage movement. It's going to be awesome, but you'll have to wait a little before we get to that. You can only see my review of that book and anything else I post up there if you are a show supporter, so if you can spare a dollar or so a month, then go and check it out. You'll become one of my very favourite people if you do. If you're new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The Claudii were one of Rome's great old patrician families. They could trace their name right back to the most nascent days of the Roman Republic after the overthrow of the monarchy, gaining their first consulship only 17 years after its formation. Over the next half millennium of Roman Republican history, they would gain in total 28 consulships, which is impressive enough, but they also had five dictatorships, a post that was created when the Republic was in time of great crisis and needed a single leader to command it. They were also granted the honour of six triumphs, great military parades given to generals after a particularly magnificent victory against Rome's enemies. One of their number, Appius Claudius, 
was also behind the construction of the Appian Way in the early 4th century BCE, a vital artery through Italy that connected Rome with the port city of Brundisium in the peninsula's heel. No other family could match this, and it can be argued that they were the most honoured and most established family in Rome. Basically, you didn't get much fancier than the Claudii. By coincidence, the children of Appius Claudius split the family into two branches. They were Publius Claudius Pulcher and Tiberius Claudius Nero. These two branches remained connected by the Claudian name, but still divided. That is, until a certain marriage tied them back together. Livia Drusilla was born on the 30th of January, 58 BCE. Her father was a Claudian, Marcus Livius Drusus Claudianus. He had taken the first three bits of his name from one of the great figures of the late Republic, Marcus Livius Drusus, a great populari reformer who, like most great populari reformers, was murdered on the orders of the conservative optimati aristocracy for trying to pass social reforms. This familial link gave Livia's father not only his august Claudian connection, but also one to the Liviae, another old family, though not quite as well-heeled as the Claudii, as they were originally plebeian. But they also had, as ancestors, a number of consuls and triumphs. Unlike his adoptive father, though, Marcus grew up to be a conservative and an ardent Republican, firmly opposing the rise of Julius Caesar. His wife and Livia's mother, Alfredia, was from a well-off plebeian family from a coastal town called Fundi to the south of Rome. We don't really know anything about her, and her family didn't offer their child that much in terms of advantage, but that was okay. Being from both the Claudii and the Polkri side of the Claudia family at that, and the Livii would be plenty. Livia would be their only child, and so all this great family tradition made her a very attractive prospect for any prospective husband. Livia grew up in Rome on the Palatine Hill, one of the oldest parts of the city, and one of the most fashionable places to live. Now, one thing that I haven't really talked about much so far is education, specifically what education a Roman noblewoman might expect. So let's talk a bit about that now. Responsibility for arranging this naturally fell to the mother, who was expected to offer moral guidance to her daughter, as well as supervising her more formal education, which usually came at the hands of an educated slave called a pedagogus. Much like in medieval and early modern times, the extent of a girl's education in ancient Rome depended a lot on the inclinations of their mother and how early they were married. It seems to me that, on the whole, the standard of Roman noblewoman's education was possibly a little higher on average than in later periods. Literacy was considered essential, and not just in Latin. Greek was also considered to be a vital skill, and it's believed that most upper-class Romans were bilingual. Now, for boys, this was because oratory was one of the most prized skills that a Roman could have. Martial skill was great, but if you couldn't perform in the Forum or in the Senate, then you wouldn't get very far. For girls? Well, things are a little muddier. Romans did not want stupid wives. They need to be able to hold their own in conversation, to be able to run a household, and of course have a good, solid moral compass. The issue was that their education was often incomplete, as they tended to be married in their very early teens, while the boys stayed in formal education for much longer. 
Once they were married, Roman wives had far too many responsibilities, even at such a young age, to be worrying with luxuries like a well-rounded education. Roman patriarchy in this area extended further. Roman daughters were expected to carry on the greatest qualities of their fathers. This was not so much their own benefit, though they could be praised for it, but so that they could then transmit such qualities to their own sons. They were basically a generational bridge for the transmission of character, virtue and distinction from male to male. And of course, while women were expected to have their father's qualities, this only went so far. They had to know their place. They had to stay within their realms and not venture into traditionally masculine spaces. In those matters, they were supposed to be appropriately meek and silent. The appropriately named Roman poet Juvenal despaired of the newly confident, educated generation of women of the early empire. While you listen to this, imagine playing a game of misogynistic bingo, because the sheer quantity of it is quite impressive. Quote, Still more exasperating is the woman who begs as soon as she sits down to dinner to discourse on poets and poetry, comparing Virgil with Homer. She rattles on at such a rate that you'd think all the pots and pans in the kitchen were crashing to the floor, or that every bell in town was clanging. All by herself she makes as much noise as some primitive tribe chasing away an eclipse. Wives shouldn't try to be public speakers. They shouldn't use rhetorical devices. They shouldn't read all the classics. There ought to be some things women don't understand. I myself can't understand a woman who can quote the rules of grammar and never make a mistake, and cites obscure, long-forgotten poets, as if men cared about such things. If she has to correct somebody, let her correct her girlfriends and leave her husband alone. So what did men like Juvenal want these girls to be doing while growing up? Well, the most respected traditional skill that a Roman wife could have was... weaving. Now, in the olden days of the Republic, this wasn't simply a practical skill, it was essential. That is how Romans were clothed back then. But by the late Republic, textiles and furnishings were being shipped in from all over the Mediterranean. And of course, upper-class women had slaves in their households to deal with the usual wear and tear of their possessions. But the loom was still placed in a prominent position in the home. Roman wives probably never used the loom all that much when they grew up, but it was symbolically very important. It was a sign of submission, that they would spend their days working hard to clothe their husband and children. Such symbolism was rife in ancient Rome. As for Livy's education, well, we don't know much, sadly, but so far as we know, it was fairly typical for what most Roman noble girls got. Certainly, she proved in her later life to be no dunce, but anything specific I could tell you about it here would just be a guess. One thing that we can say is that, like most Roman girls, her education was interrupted by her becoming a teenage bride at the age of 15, in 43 BCE. So, let's have a look at what was going on at that time. It was the year after the murder of Julius Caesar, and Rome had effectively fractured in two. Those who supported the Liberators, the faction that had been behind the murder led by Brutus and Cassius, and the forces of Antony and Octavian. After being driven out of Rome by a mob, the Liberators had headed east and taken control of that whole part of the empire. Meanwhile in Rome, Antony and Octavian focused on establishing complete control over the Senate. Generally speaking, supporters of Caesar transferred their backing to the triumvirs. But this was not the case for one man. 
Tiberius Claudius Nero was born in 85 BCE, making him about 20 years older than his future bride. Not an uncommon age gap. He came from the unfashionable side of the Claudian clan, and it seems a rather odd match on the face of it for Livia's father to have made. He was praised by Cicero for being a, quote, nobly born, talented, and self-controlling young man, which, frankly, makes him sound rather dull, and no one else seems to have much to say in the way of praise for him. He wasn't particularly wealthy or powerful. Really, I think Livia could have done a lot better. One thing, though, that he did have on his side was political allegiance. While Nero had, in the past, served in Caesar's army, commanding his fleet in the war against Pompey, he switched sides after the Ides of March, transferring his support to the Liberators. This brought him into line with Livia's father, and seems the most likely reason for his choice as a groom. Though I still think there must have been someone a little more noble out there. We have no idea what Livia thought of her groom-to-be, but of course that didn't matter all that much. Brides in Roman times theoretically had the right to reject their father's choice, but only if she could prove that he was of bad character, which would be quite the accusation. We don't have an account of what her wedding was like, but we have no reason to assume it wasn't a traditional ceremony, and we do know what one of those looked like. Like I said earlier, there is nothing Romans love more than heavy symbolism, and the rituals of marriage are rife with them. The day before the wedding, a bride was supposed to put all of her chartered toys and clothes away. She wouldn't need them anymore. She then dressed herself in a white woolen dress that she had woven herself. Remember how important I said the loom was? On the big day itself, she put that dress on again and arranged her hair in a special hairstyle involving six tight braids. Unlike weddings in Christian times, this was not a religious ceremony, though there were a number of sacrifices made during the day for luck. Like today, they both had to verbally consent to the match, and the marriage was sealed when a female guest joined the bride and groom's hands together. Then there would be a great big feast. At some point, the groom would slip away back to his house, and then at the end of the feast there would be a big parade, led by the bride, from her father's house to her husband's house. There would be well-wishers and loads of drunk guests who would toss handfuls of nuts to local children who would come out to watch. It all sounds like great fun. When she reached her husband's house, the bride was supposed to cover the doorposts in animal fat and attach strips of wool to it, which is supposed to guarantee them wealth and fortune. Sounds rather disgusting, if you ask me. Finally, her friends and family carried her over the threshold, as it was considered terrible luck for her to trip, and no one wanted to take that chance. Once there, her husband would present her with a torch and a jug of water, symbolising the fact that now her jars were all about the cooking and the cleaning. She wasn't a child anymore. She would then be led to the marital bed by a female married friend who would get her ready before her husband arrived to consummate the marriage. Like I said, we don't know anything about Livia's marriage, but we do know that their first time together was not their last, as the following year Livia gave birth to her first child, Tiberius. Like most aristocratic ladies, she employed a wet nurse to look after her son. But Tiberius's early childhood was anything but normal, as events in Rome and Greece would turn Livia and Nero's lives upside down. When Octavian, Antony and Lepidus formed the Second Triumvirate, they turned to a brutal form of Roman totalitarian repression. Prescriptions. Basically, they made a list of enemies and posted it throughout the city. 
Those men were forced to forfeit all their worldly possessions, and then they were supposed to commit suicide. If they did not, then anyone, free man, woman or slave, was permitted to kill them on the spot. On that list was Livia's father, Marcus Livius Drusus Claudianus. He was a well-known supporter of the Brutii and of the Republic, both of which the Triumvirs wanted to destroy. He joined up with the army of Brutus and Cassius, and was present at the climactic Battle of Philippi, where Octavian and Antius legions crushed the liberators. Like Brutus and Cassius, Livia's father took his own life rather than be taken as a prisoner or murdered by his enemies. Like Brutus, he was an honourable man, and he had given his life to defend the crumbling republic. But now, he was gone, and the defeat of his cause placed Livia and her husband and child in grave danger. Nero was not keen to share his father-in-law's fate, and so transferred allegiance to Antony. He really did have a knack for choosing the wrong side. But for now, things appeared to be going okay, and he was appointed praetor, an important role in the Senate. His term, though, was highly controversial, as he allied with Antony's brother Lucius and his wife Fulvia to prevent Octavian from distributing land to his veterans. You may remember this from last week. He and his family joined his two allies at Perugia and was present at the surrender of the city, joining a mass exodus in an attempt to escape retribution. For the next few years, Livia, Nero and Tiberius were on the run. They went first to Naples, where Nero tried and failed to incite an uprising. The sources colourfully describe the family's desperate escape from the city, with my favourite account being by Velius Paterculus, who says that Livia, quote, was then a fugitive before the arms and forces of the very Caesar who was soon to be her husband, carrying in her bosom her infant of two years, pursuing bypaths that she might avoid the swords of the soldiers and accompanied by but one attendant, so as the more readily to escape detection in her flight, she finally reached the sea, and with her husband Nero, made her escape by ship to Sicily. When they arrived there, they linked up with Sextus Pompey, the son of Julius Caesar's former ally-turned-enemy Pompey Magnus. But when Octavian began to make peace overtures towards Sextus, the family was forced to flee again. They headed east, first for Athens and then to Sparta, where the Claudian name still held some weight, and there they waited for everything to calm down. Suetonius, in his chapter on Tiberius and the lives of the Twelve Caesars, has one of the very few accounts of their time in Greece. Quote, After being taken all over Sicily also, and Achaea, and consigned the public care of the Spartans, because they were dependents of the Claudii, Tiberius almost lost his life as he was leaving there by night, when the woods suddenly took fire all about them, and the flames so encircled the whole company that part of Livia's robe and her hair were scorched. One thing that we can say for certain is that time on the run was not in any sense romantic for Livia. It was hard and scary. Eventually, in 39 BCE, thanks to the lobbying of Sextus Pompey, Nero managed to get his name off the prescription list, albeit with the loss of 75% of his wealth, and so he and his family were permitted to return to Rome. And that was not the only bit of good news. The 19-year-old Livia was pregnant again. Therefore, after so much uncertainty, surely now she and her husband could settle down and she could live the quiet life of a Roman noblewoman that she had seemed destined for. But all was not well in the house of Nero and Livia. 
Her loyalty to her husband, it seemed, had not wavered while they were on the run. She'd stuck by him throughout those difficult times. But a lot of writers have pinpointed this moment on their return to Rome as being when her feelings for her husband soured. He'd always been enough choice for her, a man fingered for the role largely because he was best mates with her father. He has certainly proved himself to be a lousy politician and a poor judge of both character and the strategic situation. Speaking of which, let's take a look at what is going on in the wider world. Now at this point we have finally caught up with the end of the last episode, but that seems an awfully long time ago now, so let's quickly catch you up. We ended last week with the end of Fulvia's civil war in support of her husband Mark Antony, and the sealing of a new peace secured with the marriage between the newly widowed Antony and Octavian's sister Octavia Minor. With that marriage agreed, the two dominant men in Rome agreed to continue with the division of the empire that had previously been in effect. Octavian in the west, Antony in the east. We're going to stay in the west, since that is where Livia is. Like I said, Nero's return to Rome had come at an astronomical cost. His and Livia's old home on the Palatine Hill was gone, and though we don't know for sure where it was they finally end up, it seems that it was thanks to her connections, not his, that they managed to survive. You may remember that Livia's father had been adopted by a powerful Roman noble. Well, he had returned that favour back in the day, taking in a boy who took the name Marcus Livius Drusus Libo. Now, Libo was not an enormously powerful man in Rome, and information about his life is patchy, but in this brief window, he was an enormously helpful ally for Livia to have, because his aunt, his natural-born aunt, that is, was married to the very man who had been largely responsible for killing Livia's father, taking her fortune, and sending her on the run for three years. Yes, Libo's aunt was Scribonia, the second and current wife of Octavian. It's happy coincidences like that that change history, and rarely is that more acute than right here. So, spoiler alert, both Livia and Octavian end up abandoning their spouses and marrying each other. Why and how did this happen? Well, that, you'll be pleased to hear, depends entirely on who you ask. Let's look at some of the facts first. Livia was heavily pregnant at this time. Indeed, she would give birth to her second son, Claudius Drusus Nero, who we will refer to as Drusus, just three days before marrying her former enemy Octavian. Now, he had been married to Scribonia, a woman ten years his senior, for the last three years. She had been forced into that match, and it had not been a happy one. Octavian claimed that she nagged him constantly, while he was very open with his affairs with other Roman noblewomen. Showing himself to be a classic gent, he divorced Scribonia on the very same day that she gave birth to their only child, Julia. There are a few theories in the sources about how Livia and Octavian's marriage came about, though the sources are maddeningly brief about their descriptions of this. Octavian was, at that point, engaged in a naval war with Sextus Pompey, and so the sources are all focused on that, and not the thing that we want them to be giving us details on. This does not stop them, though, from making their opinions known. The first theory is that Octavian, captivated by Livia's beauty, stole her by force from an unwilling Nero. Probably the most famous proponent of this theory was Tacitus, who wrote that Octavian, quote, smitten by her beauty, took her from her husband. A similar version is to be found in the writings of Suetonius, though to be fair he actually contradicts himself in another part of his work. But the more common theory actually has Nero being a willing accomplice in all this. 
Thelius Paterculus wrote that Octavian, quote, espoused Livia, who was given to him in marriage by her former husband under circumstances which augured well for the state. This is backed up by Cassius Dio, who states that, quote, her husband himself gave the woman in marriage, just as a father would. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that we need to do a little bit more digging here, as this isn't really enough. Implicit in both these theories is the case that Octavian was attracted to Livia on the basis of looks, and that seems like it could well be true. Now, unlike almost every other woman in Roman history, we have a ton of evidence on Livia's appearance, as there are more surviving statues of her than any other Roman woman. Now, you don't need me to tell you that these offer more of an idealised vision than an accurate likeness, but if we do take them at face value, then we see a woman with a rounded face, plump cheeks, a small but well-formed mouth, arching eyebrows, and an open gaze. If you look at these busts, you see a pretty woman, not necessarily a Helen of Troy, but certainly someone with whom you can imagine a young man like Octavian could become captivated. The sources do present Livia as being beautiful, but not always by means of a compliment. Beauty was something prized in a woman, but it could also be feared. Writers worried about the effect on men that a beautiful, educated and articulate woman could have, and Livia, as we shall see, is just such a woman that they feared. But there are other good reasons why Octavian might have wanted to marry Livia. She was young and proven to be fertile, though that latter point is undermined by the fact that Scribonia was, while older, certainly still capable of giving Octavian children. More important, though, was her lineage. Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, but his natural parents' family tree was far less august. This had opened him up to scorn from snooty upper-class senators who were not wild about being ruled by some nouveau-riche little parvenu. Scribonia had some noble chops, but nothing like being both a Claudii and a Livii. Livia's lineage, far more than her looks, would have been very enticing for Octavian. Equally, we can see why Livia might be attracted by Octavian. Not that her consent was necessarily required, of course. For starters, he was a hugely powerful man. He held half the empire in his hands, had huge wealth thanks to the inheritance given to him by his adoptive father Julius Caesar, and was basically acting like a king. He was also apparently handsome and debonair. One of his contemporary biographers described him as having, quote, youthful charm, and that he, quote, attracted many women by his comeliness and high lineage. Meanwhile, she was married to a rather disappointing man who had gambled his fortune on a lost cause and failed. And remember, this was a society where this kind of wife-swapping was neither unusual nor even that controversial. Octavian had already dumped one wife and forced his next one to leave her husband and marry him. And they didn't even have to be forced. There is the famous example of Cato the Younger, one of the straightest and most Puritan men it is possible to find in history, who allowed an elderly friend essentially to marry his own wife Marcia in order that their families be brought close together. When the friend died, he remarried Marcia. There were a few raised eyebrows, but no huge scandal. Indeed, this wasn't even that out of the blue for everyone, as there is good reason to believe that Octavian and Livia were sleeping together even before she was divorced from Nero. I've already said that Octavian was a bit of a cad, and he really didn't care who knew about it. This is something that Mark Antony, largely in order to defend himself against similar claims, liked to throw at him. Suetonius, for example, writes the following of Octavian. Quote, That he was given to adultery, not even his friends deny. 
Mark Anthony charged him, besides his hasty marriage with Livia, with taking the wife of an ex-consul from her husband's dining room before his very eyes into a bedchamber and bringing her back the table with her hair in disorder and her ears glowing. However, depending on how you read your Latin, it's possible to claim that, in fact, it was Livia whom Octavian plucked from the dinner table that night, and that actually this was a rather bawdy betrothal party, rather than Octavian essentially raping another man's wife. So we can see Octavian's motive for wanting to marry Livia, and her reasons for why she might have wanted to do so as well. But what of Nero? Was he the wronged husband of a stolen wife, as Tacitus would have us believe, or the willing cuckold? Well, the simple fact is that he probably had no say in the matter. His star wasn't so much on the wane as basically extinguished. He had no means to fight Octavian on this, and would lose if he tried. If his wife had seriously objected, then maybe they could have tried to escape, but she clearly didn't. So it seems to me that he had two options, the easy way or the hard way. Remember, although Octavian was the reason for his current misfortune, in a funny sort of way, he was also his lifeline. Yes, he had effectively stolen 75% of his wealth, but he had let him return, and that wasn't nothing. The fact that he appears to have given Livia away at her wedding to Octavian certainly seems to suggest that he took the deal. Just to quickly go back to that whole giving away thing, this was likely something that Octavian would have insisted upon for legal reasons. Remember that in Roman law, the wife was legally the property of the husband, and so Nero's part in the wedding ceremony was considered important, as he was essentially bestowing his property into Octavian's possession. In his history of the period, Cassius Dio neatly describes how weird the situation was, and how it seemed so neat that it appeared to be like destiny. Just a note, when he refers to Caesar, he is referring to Octavian. Quote, When Caesar's party got the upper hand, Nero withdrew with his wife Livia Drusilla and with his son Tiberius. This again was one of the strangest whims of fate, for this Livia, who then fled from Caesar, later on was married to him, and this Tiberius, who then took flight with his parents, succeeded Caesar in the office of emperor. If you remember, this thing was also in that Velis Pataculus quote that I read to you earlier in the episode. Since he's about to depart our story, never to return, it's worth quickly finishing off the story of Nero. Following the wedding, he retired to quiet obscurity with his two sons, Tiberius and Drusus, as it was Roman custom for the father to take the sons in any divorce. There they lived for the next five years, before Nero eventually died. His son Tiberius, aged only nine, delivered his father's eulogy. Okay, so let's take stock. Livia is 19 years old, has two children with her ex-husband, and has just married one of the two most powerful men in the Roman world. But that did not mean that he would stay that way, nor was there any guarantee that even if he did, his legacy would live on. But there were signs that Octavian, Livia, and their descendants were destined for greatness. Now, I will warn you that this story has all the hallmarks of a highly convenient after-the-fact omen-slash-prophecy that ancient sources love. But it is in a ton of them, so it's worth relating. The story goes that, shortly after her marriage to Octavian, Livia was sitting in the grounds of her villa, when, in the words of the Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder, quote, There fell into her lap a hen of remarkable whiteness, which an eagle let fall from aloft, without its receiving the slightest injury. It was discovered that miracle was added to miracle, and that it held in its beak a branch of laurel covered with berries. 
the Arisbuses, that would be a kind of Roman priest, gave orders that the hen and her progeny should be carefully preserved, and the branch planted and tended with religious care. From the branch there has now arisen wondrous to relate quite a grove, and Augustus Caesar afterwards, when celebrating a triumph, held a branch of it in his hand, and wore a wreath of this laurel on his head, since which time all the succeeding emperors had followed his example. There's quite a bit to unpack there, but the most important bit is the symbolism of Livia as the mother of a dynasty. Romans didn't really believe in coincidence. This was a sign from Jupiter, the king of the gods, as the eagle was one of his symbols. At a very basic level, this was very positive, as it proved that Livia, and by extension her husband and family, were blessed by the father of the gods. But it goes further than that. Jupiter had given Livia a laurel branch that grew and grew to such an extent that generations of Roman emperors to come, the entire Julio-Claudian dynasty in fact, would use it to create garlands and crowns when they returned to the Eternal City in triumph after a great victory. Their successes, their glories, can be traced to her and this moment. But this is all in the future. For now, Livia is just the wife of one of the de facto dictators of Rome, and there is no guarantee that her son would inherit anything. The days of the Republic, where a mother might guide a son to become consul, were done. The power of the consul had been usurped by Antony and Octavian. And while the balance of power between these two men, one in the east and the other in the west, was still just about holding, it was fragile. But, to misquote a line from Tolkien, largely because I can't help myself, there could only be one master of Rome. Only one who could bend it to its will. And he does not share power. But of course that alliance between them was guaranteed by that marriage between Antony and Octavian's sister Octavia. She was acting as mediator between these two men, and rather than Livia was the most powerful woman in Rome. She was keeping the peace, but not for long. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.